joining us. I'm Bishop Tom Daly from the Diocese of Spokane, and this is our program, The Bishop and the Vickers. As I mentioned, in the summer months, uh, the Vickers uh, are on vacation, at least that's what they told me. And um, joining uh, me today is Father Gary Thomas, uh, priest of the uh, Diocese of San Jose, uh, the official exorcist of the diocese, but a well-respected speaker and presenter at conferences uh, throughout the United States. Uh, Father Thomas, thank you for joining us. And um, in our earlier program, the first uh, segment, we we spoke about the whole experience, your training of the team that you put together, the fact that the Catholic Church um, takes very seriously, based upon Scripture, uh, the reality of evil, the devil, and uh, provides uh, for, through a ritual and through prayer, um, the uh, deliverance of that in other ways. I'd like you to speak a little bit in, the, in our second uh, half of the program, um, maybe some of the, the, the cases, the experiences you've had, um, some that are, are very dramatic. Um, I'm not going to say you were scared by this, but um, I know you have a team with you, but um, just a little bit more specific, I know without revealing things, but sure. enough to help our listening audience. Sure. Again, uh, Bishop, thank you very much for having me on your show this morning. Um, I, I can... I'd like to share two cases very briefly with you of of situations that were incredibly dramatic, um, where what you would see in a movie, you would see very much the same kinds of signs and symptoms and drama in which Satan, in all of his um, um, bravado, would attempt to try and intimidate myself and the team. It's a grace that for whatever reason, I am not afraid, and I and even in the books that I've written by Gabriel Amorth and others, where they clearly say, you know, the exorcist must be a believer, and the exorcist must not show any fear. It has to be a grace because I'm myself and the team. We really are not afraid because we know Christ is always present in every one of these exorcisms, along with the Blessed Mother and the angels. The one, the first case would be involving a man who, at the time, came to see me was from another diocese was sent to me by a local bishop of another diocese in California, and who began uh, exhibiting uh, during the Easter vigil in the local cathedral of his diocese, began exhibiting manifestations whereby during the rite of baptism, during the Easter vigil, he began to have uh, hallucinations, he fell on the floor, as was described to me, he rolled himself up into a ball looking something like a serpent, began to manipulate his tongue, his eyes were rolling in the back of his head. When he came to me and we learned his story, his mother and father were from a country in, in Central America. The father began to waver as to whether or not the child in the womb of his wife belonged to him. Because he doubted that his wife had been faithful to him, he began performing acts of witchcraft against her to kill the child. The mother, in turn, began to equally perform acts of witchcraft against the husband. Now, in the Hispanic culture, the superstitions of a variety kind, not just in that culture, but specifically in that culture, are very widespread. When that child was two years old, he was sexually molested by a half-brother and a neighbor. 
for 33 years, the demon, the demonic tribe, hibernated within that young man. And for years, this is the things he told us, he felt that there was something attached to him, but he believed it was his guardian angel. Only at that vigil did he manifest at age 35. So demons, if a, if a, if a child in the womb is exposed to the occult or to issues having in any which way to do with uh, false gods or anything satanic, a child in the womb is very highly vulnerable to a demonic attachment. Why? Because the child has not yet formed free will. So the abuse served as the engine to the soul wound that had been created by the exposure in the womb between the mother and the father having to do with issues invoking the satanic to harm the child. So when he came to us for a period of four years, we would meet with him monthly, not only with my team, but with people from a charismatic group that came from a neighboring diocese to, who knew him, were there to support him. And there would be, we would work with him for two, two and a half hours at a time. There would be uh, foaming at the mouth. There would be the, um, the aversion to the sacred, the rolling of the eyes. There would be, he would be speaking in, he knew no Spanish, but he spoke in Spanish. He spoke in Latin. He spoke in gibberish. Uh, he would be possessed inordinate strength. One night he picked up somebody who was from a neighboring team and threw them against the wall of our confessional. Um, this went on for a period of four years. We did uh, deliver a lot of demonic spirits out of him because as I may have mentioned, may or may not have mentioned earlier, there's never one demon. There's a system that we call it a tribe because there's a hierarchy of angels. There's also a parallel hierarchy of the demonic. Some are very, some are stronger than others. Some are more intelligent than others. And so, but he got to the point, he was unwilling to fulfill the protocol of daily prayer, weekly mass, monthly confession, because when he would go to church, he would begin to manifest. And we kept saying to him, you, you have, this is a toxin against the demonic. So we finally had to say, we're gonna part ways until you're ready to come back. Consequently, the diocese where he was living actually appointed an exorcist. He eventually went to that exorcist and was delivered. Uh, and to this day, actually, as of yesterday, I even heard that he was doing very quite well. Yeah. That's one case. Another case involves someone we're working with now who's of an Indian background, born here in the United States. Her mother and father, both Catholic, but lukewarm, sort of semi-practicing, semi-fallen away, but not very devout. The father and mother, though married in the church, did not, the father did not want children, the mother wanted children, when the mother got pregnant, the father pushed and, and uh, pressured the wife to abort the child. She refused to abort the child, but that itself was a curse placed on the child. When the child grew into more maturity, into college, she began getting, though she was Catholic, began getting involved in issues of the occult, uh, began uh, practicing some forms of palm reading, uh, went to a seance, uh, got involved with people in her social circle who were involved in witchcraft, 
And then she began uh, exhibiting manifestations, some of which we couldn't ascertain if they were demonic. But she had been abused when she was a little girl, and these memories are now beginning to come to the surface. Uh, she began uh, having memories of being abused by uh, her father. And um, there also were generational curses having to do with um, Hinduism. And some of those demons have now appeared because there were generational curses placed upon her. So we have severed all these ties with all of these uh, particular demons and all of these practices. Uh, we sent her to a specialist to deal with um, other kinds of psychological issues that turned out to be negative. And she's on the road to recovery. Uh, many of the manifestations now are no longer present. She herself has been liberated, but she's not completely free. But when she comes, there are great histrionic uh, yellings and screamings and jumping from her place and falling on the floor and us praying over her uh, using, uh, we use uh, the sacramental oil of the sick, we use the oil of the catechumen, which is, we've also found to be very toxic against the demonic. Um, but what you would see in the movie some of that is, is actually accurate. real. Yeah. What um, I'm sure in the years if that uh, you've been um, involved in this ministry, you must have um, had those that clearly they were either um, made up or imagined, um, um, you know, turn out to be false. Um, how do you, what, you know, you, some of these people maybe were well-intentioned, others mm -hmm. perhaps not. Um, what do you steer them to see, to see a counselor, to, um, yeah. In, in, in the healing ministry of the church, we obviously teach uh, that the cross is the ultimate symbol of Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death. We also have, uh, because of Christ's own healing ministry, we have the sacraments of reconciliation and the sacrament of the sick. And those are very much tied to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as well in terms of his public ministry and his sacrifice. So from that standpoint, when people come and they're there in good faith and we assume good faith, it's incumbent upon us, I believe, as the church to provide the, the arsenal of the variety of healing exercises that are available to us that are provided for by the Lord Jesus himself. So when people come and it, we're able to discern that what they're suffering from is not a demonic condition, but it is in the realm of psychological, psychiatric, mental, that we then refer them to the very therapist that we ourselves employ on our team because while they may not have something that is of a demonic condition, they may have another kind of condition that is still very treatable, and that it's in, it's in the best interest of us as a church. If we truly believe in the efficaciousness of the cross and in the power of Christ to heal, that psychology and psychiatry, through the lens of faith, can all, is also part of the ministry of Christ's healing power. Otherwise, how would, we, how would we have been able to ascertain the knowledge that we have about uh, the human condition? And that, therefore, it is, it is essential for us to be able to also help that person reach a stage 
where they can be restored. I remember once you said uh, the power of the sacrament of reconciliation and confession, um, that that could be more powerful than, uh, or is more powerful than a, a, a rite of exorcism. Maybe yeah. speak just for our listening audience, because um, oftentimes in the previous, when we met with the vicars, we talked about um, just the power of that grace that comes from the sacrament of reconciliation, not only forgiveness of sins, but healing. Maybe just briefly sure. before we take a break. Uh, that comment that you made um, is a quote that I learned from Gabriel Lamorth. Gabriel Lamorth was the one who said uh, in writing that, an that uh, the sacrament of reconciliation is more powerful than, than the solemn rite of exorcism. And, and in my own personal experience, what, uh, the rite of exorcism is a sacramental. These reconciliation is a sacrament. So when, when there is sin attached to our lives, very, very often Satan uses temptation as a doorway to enter into the lives of people. And so when people come to confess their sin, the priest is acting in persona Christi, as you know, and in the action of in persona Christi, the, the healing of memories the uh, severing of ties between certain sins and certainly certain uh, sins that I would call uh, strongholds um, helps liberate that person to be able to move forward so that they themselves are not in this constant sort of mental state of despair and melancholy. And then what I've begun now employing for the last several years uh, through, um, through this method called Unbound where I, I just usually I use the metaphor of the cross and crush certain strongholds with that people in terms of the sort of the the repetition of sins having to do with pornography or masturbation, or rage or fear or anger or despair uh, or unforgiveness. Um, when people come into the arena of the sacrament and I'm able to use the cross to crush the strongholds to sever the ties that people have between their sins and the grace of God. I've had people come back uh, unsolicited from me and say that, that, that they really experienced a kind of liberation. And I think there is a direct correlation between the lack of use of the sacrament of reconciliation and the fact that the demonic and demonic activity appears to be on the rise. Thank and you. We'll take a break now, and I'd like to address that when we come back. Uh, it's the summer, and the vicars have the entire summer off, but as the faithful shepherd of the Diocese of Spokane, I'm here. Um, joining me is uh, Father Gary Thomas, uh, priest of the Diocese of San Jose, a good friend, and uh, again, the exorcist of the Diocese of San Jose, speaking to us about the reality of evil, uh, being able to differentiate between evil and psychological issues. Um, and so we last left before the break, um, on, uh, is there a rise in the demonic? Are there more people, um, we talk about people who are drifting, no affiliation with religion, and not that, again, that is um, a guarantee of this, but um, would, would some say that uh, this, this occasion of evil, uh, this more demonstrative expression of evil is, is more present? Um, I get that. Thank you, Bishop. I get that question asked many times when I give uh, other kinds of interviews. 
there is a rise in the activity of the demonic, I believe, in the United States. Um, and I, I believe that that's true for two reasons. One, because every exorcist I know is swamped with people coming at them. And number two, as we have seen now, a great slippage in the practice by uh, the citizenry and the residents of the United States in general, as it applies specifically to Christianity, there is a, 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 a corresponding rise in the frequency of people who now search out practices of the occult, of what we call the New Age, because Benedict XVI, early in his papacy, said, as faith diminishes, superstition increases. So every one of us, as a human being, we all have a soul. And because we all have a soul, and we're rational people, and we have an intellect, and we have reason, the same questions through the lens of faith are now being asked without the lens of faith, but 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 using the lens of an artificial kind of spirituality. Uh, and so people, while people are moving away from traditional institutional forms of religion, are still seeking those questions in terms of the purpose of my life. And so um, if you Google in, for example, in any locality, especially in, in urban, suburban areas, uh, places such as um, metaphysical shops or palm readers or other forms of uh, new age practices such as crystal shops. You will find uh, many of these, these businesses uh, or psychics. You will find many of these shops uh, are quite uh, availing to people uh, in most uh, urban and suburban uh, areas uh, where once upon a time it would be a rarity, a rarity or an anomaly to see such as this. The people who come to me very, very often have been involved in uh, conjuring instruments such as Ouija boards. It's not the person who does the Ouija board once when they're in the seventh grade, it's some kind of a sleepover. It's the person who becomes very good at the Ouija board and uses it with frequency. I recently had a, a person come to me from a local university who had been involved, who was involved in what's called ayahuasca, which is uh, very new age, very pagan, uh, a, a very indigenous form of um, uh, paganism involving herbs that are ground from certain leaves that are then drunk uh, in a water solution, which then leads to a higher state of awareness. Uh, and this person is under the, the supervision of a shaman. Um, so, and people use these terms now, and they frequent these individuals and these kinds of, of pagan movements uh, in a very nonchalant, kind of normative kind of way. So, uh, seeking uh, a witch to put a spell on someone, or in the Hispanic or the Vietnamese or Filipino cultures, uh, they do have people that are designated as witches or warlocks who have powers sometimes. Sometimes they're, they're, they're uh, phonies, but sometimes they have real powers that they have gotten because of packs that they've made either with demons or somehow it comes down through certain bloodlines. They have these spiritual giftings that they use for the dark arts. Um, so these things are very real. And 
Very, very often people think that these are all very kind of archaic or they're medieval, or they'll even sometimes refer to uh, the existence of Satan as, well, that, that, that's kind of a medieval metaphor. Or theologians in the past used to say that, um, even my time when I was a student in the seminary, uh, those were undiagnosed illnesses. Well, no, Jesus specifically performed exorcisms, and he dealt with the satanic, and the demons recognized his divine supremacy. Um, and so this is becoming more uh, normative, and people don't realize the dangers, and they don't realize the dangers because the faith optic in the lives of a lot of people now, as people are following or falling away from religious tradition, religious practices, and understanding that the church is the custodian of truth, they have nothing to hold on to, except what they themselves have in some kind of guttural, some kind of feeling kind of fashion, where there is no real absolute truth, and they're falling into these kinds of practices, and they're doing great harm to themselves and exposing them to great well, it's dangers. It's interesting, you, you, you talk about that. Uh, uh, many people have, um, you know, from St. John Paul and Pope Benedict have spoken Popes have uh, uh, about evil and the relative devil, but um, as one of the um, uh, articles said, to the chagrin of some who think this talk of the devil is outdated, to the great dismay of the demons of hell itself, and to the press, Pope Francis spoke, speaks to the devil. And in fact, I guess in, in the brief time that Pope Francis has, has been the Holy Father, um, he has spoken more about, um, about this issue of evil and the devil than his predecessors. Um, very clearly saying that the evil one hates Jesus Christ and hates all who bear his name. Um, the church, Christian way of life transformed Christianity from being a small stack to being a major uh, faith of the age, and it transformed the world in the first and the millennium and the second. And the Holy Father believes in the third, this is so needed, but we have an adversary. And um, when we think of the, think the root of the word diabolical is division, we see these divisions in, in, in the church. So um, with the reality of your impressions of, of the growth of it, in light of the fact that people are not connecting, and perhaps that's the one of the tragedies of life, both uh, of whether it's urbanization or uh, the reliance, the obsession with technology is not as a tool, but becomes an obsession. There's an isolating effect with people who haven't heard or do not believe that they are loved by God, a God who loved us so much he gave us his son, and that each of us, again, the beauty of, of Christ's relationship with the apostles and the disciples, seeing greatness in each one of us, that we are beloved sons and daughters of God. And because of that, uh, that whatever hardship or what's in one's past is sin, um, that with the Lord there's healing redemption. And um, so... In a culture that moves away from this, a culture that in many ways, uh, as a nation, we were a religious people, uh, one of the many tragedies of this, um, uh, the decline in the practice of the faith, is now the um, sense of despair. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think that there's a connection there with probably, as you, you're saying, um, the increase uh, of, of, of something demonstrative of the demonic and, and, and evil. Something I'd like just to yeah. touch on too, yeah. Bishop, has to do with just what you said about the nation. 
um, as, the na as our nation, which was once very communitarian, has become much more individualistic, the same now, as to your point about technology, we have also become uh, a people that are very individualized, mm -hmm. and that the, the, the drawing away, Catholicism is, is primarily a communitarian religion. And while there are individual aspects attached to it, we gather in communion specifically for the Eucharist, and all the seven sacraments have a communitarian, communal nature to them. When you move away from that, that the, from the centrality of the Eucharist as what brings us together and keeps us in solidarity, it then makes us that much more vulnerable and leaves us, in a sense, without any kind of support system uh, as it applies to the values and virtues that we hold on to. And um, C.S. Lewis oftentimes will mention in our show the, the importance of the books, and I have recommended to our listening audience that they should read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. But another one I think it would be very important is the, um, the Screwtape Letters. And um, it would be C.S. Lewis, the, uh, the great uh, apologist who wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. I would encourage our audience to, um, to read also that book by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, and to, to identify that, because so often in a culture in which we live that denies the reality of God, um, likewise is a denial of the reality of evil. We don't have much time left, but I know you mentioned at the beginning of our first segment uh, that the book The Right uh, and the movie that followed Maybe just want to speak about uh, to that book, uh, the author, uh, the role you played in it, and um, maybe even the movie, which I understand is certainly a Hollywood version. Sure. Of that. Yeah. The um, the author of the book, Matt Balio, happened to be taking the course at the Regina Apostolorum at the same time I was. So I had never heard of Matt Balio until um, we were classmates in the course, so to speak. And I found out at that time, not only was he a native of San Diego, went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, was living in Rome, was a freelance journalist, had written for United Press International, had written for a number of English-speaking magazines in Italy, and had met his wife there. Um, but he was taking the course simply out of curiosity. And at that time, anybody was had access to take the course. So when he got to know me, and he would sometimes, uh, when the translator wasn't present uh, on specific class presentations, he would translate for me, because I knew very little bit of Italian and could not really understand in the same way you and I are having a conversation today. And so once I determined that I needed to find an exorcist to really work under and train while I was on my sabbatical, once that happened, he said, how would you feel if I wrote a book about your experiences? And I said in a very kind of casual way, oh, sure, go ahead. So he interviewed me for hours while I, I was beginning to work in an apprenticeship role, Tullia's role, under Father Carmen de Fipolis, who's one of the nine exorcists in Rome at the time, at St. Lawrence Inside the Walls, uh, which is one of the most famous old basilic, minor basilicas in Rome. Um, when the book was in the process of being written, Doubleday, which was the publisher, uh, was able to sell the rights of the book to New Line Cinema. 
And so uh, he informed me that there was a movie that was going to ensue. And eventually, to make a long story short, I signed a contract with New Line, which Lynn Warner Brothers eventually bought. And I worked uh, on the movie set with Anthony Hopkins, who was the star, not playing me, but playing my priest mentor, Father Carmen. I worked on the set for a week, had some great conversations. I did a lot of evangelizing on that movie set. And uh, I think while the movie itself, to your point, is, and I tell this to people all the time, it's a movie, Hollywood took some license with it, some things in that movie did happen, some things in that movie did not happen specifically to me. There wasn't anything in that movie that could not happen, but the book itself is all true, and it's really a chronicle of my, my training. And I would recommend to the audience uh, to take a look at it. Finally, I think as we, we prepare to, to wrap up uh, this time together, you had four points maybe for our listening audience that are very helpful that Father Dennis McManus uh, offered. And, you share with us. Uh, oftentimes, people will say to me, "You know, how do how do I make sure? What can I do to ensure that the evil one have no effect or bearing on me?" And uh, Father Dennis McManus, uh, in one of his many terrific presentations, said, "There's four ordinary means of protection, which I've actually given talks on: a faith life, a prayer life, a moral life, and a sacramental life. You practice those four pillars." and the chances of the evil one having any bearing or effect upon you is nil to non-existent. Thank you, Father Thomas. Maybe we can entrust uh, uh, this time to Our Lady, uh, the patroness of our diocese of Our Lady of Lords. And again, depending upon when you listen to the show, a reminder that on July 23rd at 7 p.m. at Avista Stadium, we will have our Rosary Crusade, and we invite all of our listening audience in the state of Washington and northern Idaho and western Montana to join us in asking our Blessed Mother to intercede in our life as we know our Mother leads us always closer to her Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Lord, pray for us, and live Jesus in our hearts forever. Amen. Amen.